0: viewers a bit about your background yeah. and and history with, around nicotine okay
1: well uh, I came to nicotine rather late in terms of you know my advocacy work because I was involved way way back in drugs harm reduction at the height of the hiv/aids epidemic so I was a researcher doing work in the UK on the needle exchange on methadone and working with w-h-o and UN organizations to help promote harm reduction for drugs. So I was, a, if you like, I'm a card-carrying harm reductionist. I started off as a fairly neutral researcher because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a social scientist with a public health interest. So I was kind of more observing and also evaluating and gradually became converted to drugs harm reduction. And I eventually got fed up with academic life and I retired and I went to work for the International Harm Reduction Association, which is a, an advocacy group which had the main aim to get the UN organisations on side with drugs harm reduction. So to cut a long story short, when I resigned from that, when I retired from that, um, I got interested in tobacco harm reduction and I thought, well, you know, all this harm reduction work I've done is exactly the same here. It'll be easy sailing because this is a much easier thing than drugs. But it turned out to be um, rather different.
0: Well, how silly is that to think that, you know, just because it's nicotine, it's going to be easy?
1: (laughs) Um, I thought it'd be easy because it's about smoking and everybody wants to see an end to smoking. All my public health colleagues want to see an end to smoking. And there hadn't been the easy fix. You know, like you could offer people NRT or you could. um, do lots of things to discourage them from smoking making it difficult you know like you can't smoke here or there or you know all the all, all the stigmatization interestingly you know the only field of public health where you use stigma for people's own benefit you know it's it, that's bizarre but you know i thought this would be easy because this was suddenly you know, the, the alternative safer nicotine products were you know, obviously to me the big solution. But when it comes to tobacco, when it comes to smoking, many of my public health colleagues at that time and still many today see it through a very different lens. And, and the lens is it's a big, smoking's a big plot by big tobacco, safer nicotine products another plot by Big Tobacco to keep people addicted, but keep, you know, addicted to nicotine, if they they might not be smoking. So the anti-industry, anti-tobacco industry thing, I think is a real, you know, it's a real thing that focuses things, you know, really negatively, because they were seen as the enemy. And when alternative products came along, people thought, well, this was another tobacco company ploy. Disregarding the fact that the early products we're not tobacco company products.
0: Right, that's right, I mean this was a, an industry that was innovated outside of the tobacco industry.
1: And that's what's fascinating because here you have like a, a, an industry that has public health benefits which isn't designed to have that but it came from grassroots activity. If you look back at the history of vaping devices, a um, few Chinese devices but then there's the v- development of mods, you know, people modi- you know, modifying batteries and you know to make Flashlight something stuff e- and exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of intriguing and like it's underground movement of uh, and the innovations were coming from you know, vapors garages kind of you know analogy and not necessarily from you know large e-cigarette companies and also there was an underground of um, activism odd uh, well two undergrounds one is like it was a bit cultish because you know there were vape fests and there were e-cigarette forums and you know t-shirts and the, the fancy design of the devices and um, the early days kind of fascinating in that way because he was, well, there was a culture a culture yeah a culture and a very important culture because it was a culture that said uh, you know we're not sick we're not addicted we're not in need of treatment but this is a legal drug and we want to use it in a safer way. So A lot of the exciting stuff that was going on was way before bigger companies got involved. As too, if you look in the UK, the big uptake in e-cigarettes was way before the UK government got interested in them and put their weight behind them. So there's, a, there's an unwritten history of the, the, the underground movement for safer nicotine.
0: I wonder if uh, public health and say WT, uh, WHO had a reaction that was kind of like how dare you I think there's a lot in it because
1: let's say WHO said we need to invent a safer nicotine device and what if they persuaded you know Bloomberg and others you know whatever found that to fund the science develop the product and it was owned by WHO owned by medicine it would have been a more boring story but it would have been a different story I think one of the difficulties that people in public health, the WHO, have is that this came from left field. It wasn't from them. It came from companies, it came from China, it came from consumers making these choices. So, there's, a, I mean, the, the, it, it, maybe it's, it's a bit cheeky to suggest it, but they don't own it. Mm. And they, they haven't owned it, so if you don't own it, what best next can you do but raise doubts? <laughs>
0: So you've been around obviously a lot of uh, government action and regulatory action and public health action. What is your assessment of WHO and SCTC going into COP 9? Are they doing a good job or are they, you know, falling down? They're falling down because
1: the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, it's, um, it's an interesting international treaty. It's the only other framework convention is the one on climate. These are unusual beasts, but they set frameworks, but not detail. So the convention itself is good in its aims, you know, an end to harmful tobacco use, an end to smoking. But it's the way I think that it's being co-opted by people who want to partic- pursue a particular line. So it's eminently changeable. But for now, uh, it's dominated by people who have an abstinence view on nicotine, tobacco and smoking so it's gone wrong but it's it's it can be claimed back but it's going to take some time because COP FCTC is actually owned by the countries, it's owned by the, the parties to the convention those who signed up to it so we're moving into well, we've got a virtual COP this year but I think we can make moves there but at the moment WHO and FCTC meeting which is the COP are very anti- Safe and nicotine products. Now, they're being uh, as
0: about as opposite of inclusive.
1: Yeah, crazy, absolutely crazy. There are two framework conventions, the climate framework, meeting next week. open, invita- inviting people to collaborate. It has a global village, you know, 100 exhibitors. It has 2,500 NGOs who have signed up as observers. Tobacco COP, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, a couple of weeks further down the line, only 21 observer organisations, 2,500 of the climate, 21, they ban, you know, there's no opportunity for consumer groups, for people affected by this, to engage. It's a closed shop and it doesn't stream, it doesn't make its proceedings visible. And when they had the physical meeting, Ritually, on the first day, they'd exclude the public and the media. So it's kind of shrouds itself in secrecy in this sort of supposed fear of infiltration by the
0: enemy. <laughs> it's communism with WHO characteristics. Uh, you said it but yes. <laughs> well on that point I mean uh, how much of an impact uh, and I don't you don't want to be too political here but because these are the countries that are actually as a part of this framework I mean how much influence does China have over FCTC and seeing that they're one of the largest uh, tobacco companies is the actual government well, of China. you
1: hit on one of the quandaries that many of the large um, groupings that you know, China and India, and you know, there are a dozen countries around the world who have significant stakes in tobacco and cigarette production. And at the same time, they go to COP, where you're meant to have a separation of tobacco and production, not to influence the country. So there is a there's a contrary there's a there, yes, certainly.
0: Well, I mean, when if you read it, like I, I used to not. Well, I mean, these are serious, so I use the word chuckle just only lightly, right? Is that? Well, you know, Canada can't really be in discussion with China because they're, because they're a tobacco company.
1: Well, yeah, yes, you know, the, it, it, it is bizarre. It is bizarre. And you have to chuckle because some of this is so
0: strange that, you, <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you this. I mean, is, is nicotine as bad as some make it out to be? Nicotine is one of the top
1: three drugs globally. Nicotine, caffeine and alcohol. Nicotine has a bad reputation because it's assumed that nicotine is intrinsically part of tobacco and smoking. And even, nicotine doesn't cause cancer. Nicotine doesn't cause COPD. doesn't cause adverse health effects. It's a fairly benign drug. If you had to smoke your caffeine, (laughs) it might be a different story about caffeine, but I and many others, you know, many leading smoking experts would put nicotine itself on a par with caffeine you know, a mild stimulant, a drug that many people around the world are interested in using. You know, there's a a billion users of nicotine, a billion smokers and, and other users of nicotine. So, you know, it's one of those drugs which is quite popular. But nicotine is now getting the blame for the health effects which are actually associated with combustion. It's the burning, it's the bonfire of the tobacco into your lungs, which is the problem. Any way of combu- using nicotine which doesn't involve combustion is going to be safer. There are also safer ways of using oral nicotines, but basically it's the burning, it's the combustion which produces, produces 4,000 4, chemicals when you, when you inhale a cigarette, of which you know, 100 or more are known carcinogens.
0: One of the things we often hear is that, you know, that there's a anti-corporation kind of attitude, you know, wrapped up in all of this. And you hear all the time for decades, this concept of regulatory capture. And that's always, you know, fearing corporations capturing the regulator. So there's a full term for it. I'm sure you're well aware of that. But what we're seeing now, isn't it not regulatory capture of a different sort where it's non-profit advocacy groups and abstinent only purveyors like Michael Bloomberg that are actually the ones capturing the regulator.
1: Yeah, I think so because the, the whole US scare about flavors is funded by Bloomberg Money to the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids and they've been very successful in saying flavors, kids, nicotine, bad. And the regulator, the FDA, has kind of bought that because they say we want to see the public health benefits of products, but at the same time protect the kids. The FDA is making a real mess of this, in terms of regulation. In the UK, very light touch regulation. If you have a, a, an e-cigarette product, you have to notify the regulator and tell them what's in it and you know, various tests you've conducted you don't have to go through this ring roll of the fda the millions of pages of documentation for every product you know fda could have said like a blanket okay for certain types of products but it is a regulatory nightmare and it's leading to a massacre of 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 vaping products in in the us but the regulatory you need regulation because for me it's like you buy a dishwasher a washing machine you want to know it's going to work you want to know it's not going to blow up you know that it's going to be safe to have in your house so for me regulation is consumer protection and you know okay you know you don't want kids to vape necessarily Um, you know uh, so those things can be handled fairly simply controls on advertising so regulation is important but yes there are players you know tobacco companies like regulation because they can play that but also there's regulatory capture at the moment by people who are opposed to these products.
0: And in Canada, uh, they were once known to be very, you know, forward looking yeah. with stuff like this. But there's some big changes have happened. Nicotine concentration restrictions, they're like well over half of of the amount of nicotine, and we're probably moments away from potentially a national flavor ban.
1: Yes. But these this is crazy. I mean yeah, Canada is often at the front runner of interest in Developments. I mean Canada has drug consumption rooms and, you know, very full, inside, yeah. Yeah, you know, very um yeah, you know, forward looking things. But yeah. Uh but suddenly, you know politicians say, oh, flavors, you know, we have heard that flavors are bad, you know, maybe we should ban flavors, but it's like saying, you know, banning flavors from alcohol, what do you end up with? You know, just the alcohol, you know, is <laughs> I like malt whiskey, I don't want anybody to take flavor away from malt whiskey. So flavors is a daft thing, and in fact, they say only tobacco flavors, no such thing as tobacco flavor. There's a descriptor, but to make a tobacco flavour, you have to put different flavourings in to make something that appears to be tobacco. So, so there, there's no such thing as a you know as a as a tobacco flavoured only thing. And you know it, it it's um, it, it is a nonsense because it's it's part of it. Keep vaping is also is switching from smoking, but it's also in a kind of a psychology language relapse prevention. You know, you keep vaping and you don't go back to smoking because uh, new 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 flavors there's new things there's new devices to buy there's a whole lot of things open up for you that are exciting and fun it's a fun way of quitting smoking
0: it used to be that's for sure yeah it used to be and you know the last point i think to me i'd love to get your uh, thoughts on this because one of the first things that we noticed when we started covering this issue was that one of the first things regulators did it was they went after the culture. They 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 shut down the ability to ha- you know have sofas in the vape shop. Yeah. To cut back on the yeah. mingling yeah, and yeah. The, it, yeah. you know the togetherness yeah. around that that was very important for vaping.
1: Yeah, that's crazy because the vape shop is a stop smoking service. You're getting free advice from this guy. You know he's, he's working there about what to buy, how to how to vape. You have to learn how to vape. It doesn't come naturally to everybody there are online forums you share information and it's the one-to-one and the vape shop, the vape lounge is you know, it, it, it is, a, as I say, it's, a, it's like a smoking cessation service done not paid for by the state and none of this is paid for by the state
0: Which is amazing! But,
1: yeah, you know, many public health interventions, if you think about it, are not necessarily delivered by the state, they're un, unrecognized and, you know, a few good examples, We won't go into that now, but uh, this You know, the manufacturers meet the R&D costs. It hasn't been the state funding the research and development. The manufacturers produce the stuff and smokers or ex-smokers, consumers put their hands in their pockets to buy it. It's free to the government. Should be a win-win. It should be.